0: Hello, everyone! Happy New Year, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodsick. This is Episode 60 with Sonora Ja. Sonora is a writer and a professor and a journalist. We talk about her upbringing in India, how she became a journalist, and then came over to uh, the United States to teach at Seattle University, ultimately. It's a great interview. You're going to enjoy it. It's There's a lot of goodness, like a thick milkshake or a smoothie in this interview. Uh, I also want to mention that Sonora is teaching a class at Hugo House that starts on January 13th. It runs for eight weeks. It's called Writing Fiction That Dares. And I'm going to read you the little blurb that's on Hugo House's website. If you want more information and to register for this class, you can visit hugohouse.org. So here we go. Writing fiction that dares. Are your characters taking risks? Does your plot hold your reader's heart? Does your dialogue sing? Do your scenes waltz across the page? Over these eight weeks, we will get into the nuts and bolts of what makes your fiction take flight and soar. Through readings, writing exercises, and workshopping, not word shopping, workshopping, you will write at least one new chapter or revise an existing one and construct a map for your novel or short story that will keep you powering through your work of fiction that dares. That makes me want to take it, Uh, and as of recording this intro, there are only four seats left in it, so get on that, it's going to be really fun. Uh, take your fiction to the next level, and I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Outcast Productions. Outcast Productions produces theater on the edge here in Langley, Washington, and they're gearing up for their 2016 season, which includes The Gin Game, The Flick, and Dog Park, the musical. In addition, a stage reading of the Christopher Geist movie, Waiting for Guffman. If you want to take part of this as a performer, this exciting season, uh, please visit outcastproductions.net. They have auditions coming up on Sunday, January 17th. Check them out. Thank you, Outcast, for being a sponsor. If you want to be a sponsor or a donor to the podcast, you can visit theatricalmustang.podbean.com and there's a little donate button and that gives you information on both donating and being a sponsor. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to the podcast. The support has been amazing. The growth has been amazing and we have some really exciting interviews lined up for 2016. Uh, I can't wait! So thank you for listening and please enjoy episode 60 with Sonora Jaw. I am thrilled to welcome Professor Sonora <laughs> Jaw to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here, Katie. So we're in your office. You are the Associate Professor of Journalism and Media Studies here at Seattle University. Mm-hmm. And how long, how long have you been in that position?
1: Wow. Uh, I still feel brand new here, but it's been uh, 13 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Where did your love of
0: journalism come from originally? Were you kind of Nancy Drew in the backyard
1: growing up or just how did you come to it? Not at all. I was actually (laughs) very afraid of news. I was very afraid of smart people. I was afraid of asking questions. I was afraid of speaking, you know. Um, It came from just being curious, I think. I think. Having questions and knowing that this question is important, even though it may not be political or it may not be a front page thing. I used to be intimidated even reading newspapers. You know, I'd never imagined I'd be a journalist. Um, my father used to force me to read the newspaper saying this is important for language development and for your current affairs and, you know, things like that. And I would be, oh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm such a dumb person. And, you know, I grew up in that that world. Um, but it was when I finished, I, so my, I did my undergrad in commerce, in marketing. Oh, wow. It was a business management degree. And then, um, I went on to do my post-grad in communication and journalism. And at the end of that course, my professors actually said, you should go into journalism. And I said, no, no, no. I think advertising may be <laughs> something that's behind the scenes. And they said, no, journalism is what you should do. And they forced me into an internship. And within two weeks of that internship, I had my first job. So that's how I ended up becoming a journalist and eventually loving it. I hated it the first year. I was just terrified. I just didn't want to fail. I just tell, kept... Yeah, tell me more about that first oh, year. Oh, it was it was crazy. I, w- it was, I wasn't even 21. I remember my 21st birthday was at work on the job, and no one knew it was my birthday. So yeah, <laughs> I know. It was crazy. And I was just this quiet, mousy kind of person. And I just... I had this mentor. His name was Behram Contractor. He was... I mean, even today, sometimes when I write, I write for him. You know, he's at the back of my head. And he had a lot of hopes in me. I don't know what he saw in me, but he would throw these amazing assignments at me, like go, um, go, you know, into these far interiors of India on your own. Here's the money and take your camera with you. And I know you're a 21 year old urban young woman and this is India, but go um, do a story on 100 percent literacy in this southern state of Kerala. And I'm on the train the next day. And I'm like, what am I doing? (laughs) Where am I going? I'm going to die on this one, you know? And then he would send me to interview these filmmakers like Satyajit Ray, who's, you know, world famous. And he would say, today at 4.30, you're interviewing Satyajit Ray at his hotel. And, you know, so he had... So much faith in me that it just made me trust myself more and more. And then seeing my work in print, it's, I started to trust what was going on, you know, and I tell my students to trust that process as well. So he saw something within you that you didn't necessarily identify for yourself. I hadn't identified for myself. My father kind of saw that in me a little bit. My brother did too. Uh, My mom just loved everything I ever did. So I never really trusted her opinion, (laughs) but, um, and my teachers, I mean, you know, so I think mentoring is such an important thing. And I love that I get to do that now because if had, if it hadn't been for those mentors seeing something in me, I think I was just such a product of my time growing up in India where even if your family is sort of rooting for you, most of society is sort of giving you these mixed messages. Right. And, um... And I was just generally afraid of the world, you know, so to be thinking of like taking a train and being this girl that's just going out into deep recesses of rural India, I just hadn't imagined it. And I hadn't imagined that I could walk up to, you know, an important politician in India and the prime minister at one time and ask them questions and feel like you're one on one with them, you know, so... Yeah, I think Behram saw something and I trusted him because I felt like he didn't have a stake. He wasn't my mom, you know? So, yeah. Right. He was just looking for the talent. Right. Exactly. Are
0: there... What other stories that you worked on sort of... What, are, what were the highlights? What were the really the stories that you wrote that shaped you in those early years?
1: So that first year I worked with um, an evening newspaper in Bombay and this was sort of on this British pattern of the eveninger, right? Um, and that was called the Afternoon Dispatch and Courier. It's such a cool name, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and then I worked for the Times of India. So between the two jobs I was a cub reporter and a reporter crime reporter um, civic current affairs, sort of city affairs. And then I was the chief of metro bureau in Bangalore and so in all these different roles I was covering you know things like crime but mostly drawn to things of social justice anything that had that human interest element that asked questions uh, like why not just the when what you know mostly focused on the why why is this happening what is the background to this crime story Um, those were the kind of stories I went after I know that one of the stories that I felt for the first time that I had I had something to do, some change to make in the world, that I could be, you know, a factor, like I could make a change, was a very simple story that I did about this orphanage in Mumbai where I went in there and I saw that it was mostly girls in the orphanage. And I said, oh, is this a girls' orphanage? And they said, no, no, it's just that the boys get adopted very quickly. And it just hit me so hard that I came back and I wrote this story about... This chilling effect of, you know, seeing girl upon girl upon girl. And I got this letter one day. I was just, like, going through my letters at work. And there was this letter from this family. And they said, we're a very traditional family family. But my husband and I have decided to convince our joint family, our extended family, that we're going to adopt a girl, not a boy. And it just like I just stood there in the office and cried, you know, Um, and I felt like just because of me, one girl gets adopted. And so if I keep doing this, I may not even know because not everyone's sending me letters, but something might be happening in the world. Just like I was affected by books and by reading the news and that. I could be making a difference. And I think that those kind of stories, apart from the crazy crime stories, and you know, um, those called to me a lot. Uh, The other stories that called to me were like the ones I did um, covering rural affairs, like just going deep. I did that not as part of a newspaper, but I was working with this organization called ActionAid for about a year and a half um i joined them so that i could do rural stories for the national press right the the national press was not going to send me off like yeah go roam the you know roam the country and send us stories <laughs> so i had to find a way to do it and i um stories about you know women taking on the world bank and saying we don't want your money we want a rural project that's indigenous to our ways and I think all of that just showed me a part of India and it showed me a part of life that I hadn't encountered and sort of just sowed the seeds of something that eventually I ended up, ended up writing my novel, sort of being intrigued about what's going on back there uh, years later when I'd already lived in the U.S. for a long time. So those were the stories that, you know, things where I learned something new or I was personally affected. Those were the ones I think I wrote most powerfully you spoke a little bit about you had a, a camera with you. Mm-hmm. Did you have training in photography, or you just sort of? I did. In my postgraduate program, um, we learned still photography, and so I had some degree of training, but not an advanced amount of training. But I just loved being able to, you know, take pictures, and this was the old-fashioned SLR camera, um, and I got that as a gift for my twenty-first birthday from my oh, parents. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so I would take that along with me on assignments any, anyway. And so often if a photographer was not available for some of these, you know, not the typical political everyday coverage, um, I would take the camera along with me. And so for the one about the hundred percent literacy, when I traveled by myself, I took all the pictures. And so I, I, you know, that, that sort of stayed with me. I still like taking pictures. I don't, you know, I don't do it in a professional ca- capacity, but I like it.
0: What's your process for breaking breaking a story? I mean, do you, I'm guessing when you first started, there was a lot of uh, writing by hand and then bringing it back to a typewriter or... Mm-hmm what was what was the process back then and how has that changed over time for you? Oh,
1: wow. So back then, yeah, you had your little notebook and you asked people questions, right? You <laughs> didn't even have a tape recorder, you know, rarely took a tape recorder along um, and it was sort of understood. And this was also in India, right? So you hung on to your notes because your notes were really important. And yes, you had to learn to type. So that was <laughs> one of the first things that, you know, you, you wouldn't get a trainee job or an internship if you didn't know how to try, a type, the ASDF, you know, the QWERTY thing and so um i think that training of typing out your story to a deadline and also having to think it it out in advance so that you're not going back and pressing x x x x right? right um all of that has been so wonderful for now right because you're it sort of like sharpens this muscle in your brain and uh it doesn't fall to disuse i think you just continue to think that way um and so I write pretty fast now, too. Sometimes I feel like my, you know, my fingers are not keeping up with what my <laughs> brain is saying. And um, and I don't have to do too many drafts of something and, you know, that I, I sort of think well as I go along. So yeah, that that's how it was back then. And how has it changed? Copy and paste is how it's changed, right? So when I tell my students that think a story through, think of transition sentences, right? Don't copy and paste, move things around so much that you forget that you're telling a story. You know, you, a story should happen in your head before it happens on paper. And I think that's what shifted quite dramatically that now you can just go in there and start typing anything at all. Whereas earlier, I had to think of the first paragraph, right? I mean, I could start making some notes, but I had to have the first paragraph before I went ahead and told the whole story. And I think that that training is so important so i I do i mean and it's you know it's you can't romanticize anything for students now i mean you have the tools and technology now to do such so much cooler stuff so do that but don't forget you're a storyteller and if you can keep if you can combine the skills of storytelling with the tools of storytelling i think that's magical you
0: know absolutely yeah Do you think, uh, modern journalism has lost a little bit of that intention, a little bit of that soul because folks want to get, you know, they want to get the click throughs up on the website. So they get paid. Mm -hmm. I mean, do we lose something by just going right to the computer and not
1: being as intentional? I think we've lost some things, but I think also what's happening now, right? For, for a while I was quite worried, but I think now I'm excited because I've, uh, I see and we all see that... Uh, storytelling has become so much more important. Language has become so much more important because, you know, look at the number of things. If we're scrolling Facebook, we're looking at a whole lot of, you know, Katie's posted something, Sonora's posted something, you know, all these people are posting things and you feel like, oh God, I don't have the time to read this, but this looks so interesting. I'm going to save it up for later. Right. But what are we going to actually go back and invest our time in? Something that's been told beautifully and something, where the language actually enriches us, uh, makes us empathize with with what's happening, um, gives us something as writers, as human beings, and something that will be memorable, right? So all of that is storytelling. All of that is language. And we are returning to that because we know that that's what audiences are going to go for, right? right. There's also the clickbait. There's also the material where you're going to be like, you know I was raped for seven days, and you know it's, things like that, and you go in there like just terribly distraught and find out that the story is about something else altogether and they just drew in drew you in with this horrifying thing i mean all of that stuff is is um is problematic, but I think Readers, viewers, audiences are smarter than we think. And people are beginning to realize that they're not going to be fooled too many times over. And then in the end, we do come back to powerful storytelling, truth telling, uh, something that is universal, that has a universal appeal and tells us more about the human condition. And I think, again, with students, that's what I'm talking about with them. You know, what, how are you going to stay ahead of the game? Um, you read everything you can lay your hands on, learn to tell stories, learn good language.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: When did you start transitioning
0: from uh, being a journalist to uh,
1: teaching? Oh, <clears throat> so when I, after Bangalore, so I was in Bangalore for five years and then I moved to Singapore for three years because my then husband um, got a job. He was in advertising and we moved to Singapore And in Singapore, I didn't work for any um, mainstream press. I was freelancing and I did some really amazing freelance work. But I also started to have all these questions about media and democracy. And, you know, for instance, in India, we have a free press, but there's also a lot of poverty and there's a lot of corruption. Whereas in Singapore, it doesn't have a free press, but there's very little corruption and people go to bed on on a full stomach. Right. So what is the relationship? Is a free media more important or is a state controlled but pro- you know provider kind of um concept more important. So once you start to have all these questions, you go to graduate school, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I came to the US and this I had already been a journalist for 10 years. And I came to the US to do my PhD in political communication. I went to LSU, Louisiana State University, where they set up the first program in political communication. And they were inviting mid-career journalists to come in, uh, you know, they gave us good fellowships. And we went in there to to do our PhDs. And Somewhere along that way, uh, along that that road, I started to want to teach. I thought earlier that I would just go get a PhD and go back to journalism, mainstream journalism. But I actually started loving the idea of a campus life, of the life of questions, a life of um, inquiry and, you know, uh, and writing. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's when I made that transition. I didn't think that it was the end of something um, I felt like it was the beginning of another form of enriching something that I already loved. So that's when I applied here at Seattle U and got the job and moved here. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we're glad you did. <laughs> <laughs>
0: glad, to, glad to have you. Thank you. In, in, in the vicinity. Um, what, one of the things that really fascinates me about you is that you had this rich life in journalism, mm-hmm. and now you're continuing to sort of look at stories, approach stories from different, genres. So can you tell me a little bit about, uh, how your novel foreign Mm -hmm. came to start as a process and, and what that was like for you?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, it took me by surprise in a way. Um, what happened was, I was beginning to think, you know, am I, so my, in my PhD and my research, it was all about American journalism. So I was looking at how American journalists cover social movements and social protests, okay? So, how did they cover the WTO protests in Seattle? Compared that with how they covered the Vietnam protests, right? And then looked at presidential politics, use of blogs. So I was like completely in this world. But somewhere in the back of my mind, there was this other story that kept calling out to me, which was about it was the story of globalization and about seeds and how farmers in India were beginning to commit suicide by the thousands, right? And I started to think about that and read about that and begin to wonder why journalists. Um, not just in India, but across the world, were not covering this that story in this huge way. Like, what is wrong? You know, what are the pieces of that story that don't make it uh, to a front page story, right? Because I had done that kind of journalism, so I felt it can be done, right? Um, I didn't see that happening. So... I decided to do a research project on the journalistic coverage of farmer suicides in India. Okay. So Mm. I go to India and I decided I I would first go to the villages and I would talk and find, you know, find out what's happening at the local level, talk to farmers, talk to widows. And, um, I mean, and, and a lot of those widows are farmers themselves. And, um, when I was there, the way that people were telling their stories began to feel to me, um, it had this sort of very folksy lyrical quality to it. It also made me start to feel responsible in the sense of like they were saying, they were spending their time with me, they were telling me these stories and they had this expectation of me coming from somewhere in the world where decisions were made and things mattered, right? Things could be done. And I was taking these notes and they would ask me, who's going to read this? Who's going to read this? And I kept feeling the sense of, well, my committee, my tenure, you know, I mean, and I started to feel like, I don't know, I I feel like I want to tell the story in a bigger way. And I don't want it to be this small story that goes into a journalism, you know, that's preaching to the choir, sort of a newspaper thing, and an academic research paper that'll look great on my resume. But, you know, so I decided to take sort of an academic risk, and write it, you know, because our publications are usually in these scholarly journals. And that's what I had already got tenure on the basis of that. And so I decided I would write it as fiction. And so My point, my uh, desire was to write a novel, write literary fiction of the kind that people in India would read and pass on to each other, right? Um, There's a huge market for literary fiction in India. There's a huge market for good writing, for fiction, for nonfiction. There's a lot, you know, there are a lot of literary festivals in India. People actually like books, you know, and go and read those books. Um, And I wanted the, the average person at the airport to pick up this book and say, oh, farmer suicides, it's happening right here. And that, which was true, right? I mean, it sounds horrible, but just an hour out of Mumbai... All these suicides are taking place. And yet in Mumbai, I would meet people who wouldn't believe that this was happening. So that's how I decided to write it as fiction. So I came back to Seattle and I went like two blocks down from this (laughs) office to the Richard Hugo house. And I took class after class and had to learn to write fiction because I was such a journalist and such an academic. (laughs) That is a whole new thing.
0: So you had all these notes. You had this paper that you Uh had submitted and then you're taking classes at Hugo House. Mm-hmm.
1: How do you make those three things go together into a manuscript? I just started writing, so you just start to write, right? And um, and then whatever homework assignment. So I was hungry, right? I'm learning this new thing. I mean, that's another thing. I love learning new stuff, and <laughs> sometimes I hate teaching because it feels like I don't know this stuff, you guys. I don't know this. Let's figure it out together. And I want to go back and learn something more and bring it back. And you know, so. I loved being in the classroom, and so I was hungry for homework, I was hungry for assignments, I was hungry for, you know, here's, I just read this book, I love the way this author is doing this, right? So there were books like Disgrace by J.M. Coetzee. I guess that's how you pronounce his last name, um, that I found beautiful. I loved J- Zadie Smith, and you know, the way they were describing their characters, the way they tell stories, um, the twistedness of their characters, the flaws, um, I started to like all of that. And I wanted to emulate that. So I would recreate my own characters, recreate their lives. And because it was not autobiographical, I mean, this is about something that's actually happening. And, you know, there's some elements of uh, some characters that resemble me and my son. uh, But those are not the main characters. Those are not the ones that the central story is about. And uh, nothing that happened to the characters actually happened to me. And, you know, so... I had, you know, I just had to figure out plot and all of that. And it was exciting to learn all those new things. So how did I, I mean, your question was, how did I translate that on the page? I think just by trial and error, you know. Uh, It took me longer than I thought it would. But um, I think that whole process was so important to keep trying and failing and trying and failing. Absolutely. So how can you give an estimate of
0: from the idea of, This needs to be a novel. This needs to reach a larger audience in that way. To having a finished manuscript, how how long are we talking? Okay,
1: so finished manuscript or the hard the book so the finished manuscript okay yeah so (laughs) the finished manuscript i would say it was a total of about three years of actual work but it wasn't three steady years because you know i have a daytime day job as a professor and um i would write and i was a single parent raising my young child and so i would try and snatch little time you know pieces of time to write in and of course i got the residency at hedgebrook uh, that allowed me to finally finish the first draft after i finished the first draft i said sent it out to agents and got no, 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 no from agents. Right. So what I did was I took that manuscript and I put it in a drawer and I forgot about it. And I said, this is horrible. This was a bad idea. I'm not ever going to get this published. I'm we totally failed at this one. And then um, i had sent it to a couple of journalist friends of mine. And one of them who lives in Canada, she's from Bombay. And she had done a lot of journalism on the farmer suicides. She kept saying, Hey, you know what? there are people I know that would be looking for things like this. So she knew people at Random House that were looking for literary fiction. And she said, send it, send it. Have you sent it? Have you sent it? And I said, ah, this is really bad. Maybe one more draft. And she said, just send it. And I sent it and they loved it. And they said, so I didn't need an agent then, you know, I sent it directly to a publisher. Yeah. And that worked. And that was just like, and so in between, it was sitting in a drawer for one year, right? So a total of five years before the actual bound book reaches (laughs) my hands. But... Um yeah, in that there was the year when it was in the drawer. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: it was published by Random House India. India,
1: yeah. It was published by Random House India. Um, and then I got an agent here. And so my agent here in the US is still hopeful that once my memoir is published, maybe there'll be more interest in what else has this author written and then dig that up. Yeah. So we'll see. But it's still available here at Elliott Bay Books where they ship copies of it from India and they sell it here. Yeah. Amazing. And I, I know love, I
0: love seeing your posts on social media saying they're out of foreign again. Like there's obviously <laughs> a hunger yeah. for folks in this community I know. to read that.
1: Yeah. That, that makes me feel really good. It makes me feel like the story is important and I've, you know, done a decent job of it. What feedback have you gotten from readers in India? Oh, it's been great. I was actually shocked out of my mind, Katie, because I... I wanted to write a book, I, you know, and I wanted to write fiction. And I'm not being modest when I say I just wanted to write a book where I wouldn't be laughed out of the whole, you know, scene there because I do respect Indian writers in English so greatly. And I felt like I, you know, what am I even trying, right? And then it gets shortlisted for literary prizes there, the most prestigious ones. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> right? I couldn't believe it. And... That, to me, was just wonderful. I hadn't imagined that would happen, and it was just wonderful because it also, uh, you know, it popularized the book, uh, one, and it uh – took me back there for literary festivals. I got invited and flown down and all kinds of things and, um, you know, had a great book launch, multi-city book launch that Random House organized and all of that. And I had amazing people, you know, lots of people show up at these things and ask questions and buy the book and tweet at me and, you know, turn it into a play and all kinds of stuff like that. And that was just amazing so you know i had been feeling so far away from it just i was writing the book in seattle coffee shops right so i i just you know already writing is a lonely process but then not to have be in the same city where your book is or to see a random person on the local trains reading a book like a friend sent me a picture on a commuter train in bombay saying hey look someone's reading your book and oh, i do "Oh no, i wish i was there you know to see that but um i think all of that um It felt great because even now I get messages from people saying this is, you know, the characters are still in my head and that kind of stuff. And that's that. I mean, I needed that as a writer. You know, I needed to feel like I want to continue to do that kind of writing. Otherwise, it's easy to fall back on what you know, which is journalism and academic work and not necessarily feel like that's another area, the creative writing. Uh, And now I'm hooked. I'll keep doing it.
0: I think, I believe you've told me the story before, but I think it would be great. For the podcast, you talked about a play Mm -hmm. being written that was by students, right? Mm -hmm. Could you tell, would you mind telling that story? Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. It was at uh, the Hindu Lit Festival. So the Hindu is one of the largest newspapers in India. And it's, it's one of the largest English language newspapers as well. And they had this literary festival and my book was shortlisted for the Hindu Prize for Literary Fiction. And so what they did was the, they took the five books that were nominated and they gave it to five top colleges in Chennai where the festival was. And those students and their drama programs uh, produced the play. And so it was amazing to go there. And there were two colleges, actually, that that picked my book to do the play and to watch Students may take ownership of the book and the characters and the way they were playing them. And, you know, I was just sitting back in the audience and watching them and realizing that this is their thing. You know, they're getting something out of this. And then they had audience questions uh, posed to them. And one audience, one audience member asked them, um that, you know, what do you feel about this issue of farmer suicides? And they said, you know, we didn't know about it until we read this book. But now that we know about it, we've actually taken up a signature campaign that we're going to send to the government to say we're not OK with, you know, with the uh, government subsidies and, you know, that kind of all the all the activism that needs to be done, all the, you know, policy changes that need to be made. And we want to um, to have sort of a, you know, activist uh, part of this thing and that was just like oh my god I can just die here and this will be great and (laughs) (laughs) that was really wonderful and they didn't even know I was in the audience and you know it just was a lovely feeling that it actually had the, that it had a bigger effect than I had hoped for that story, you know, and I don't know whether things are going to change. I mean, this is a huge, complex issue, right? One book is not going to change it. Right. But it's a small drop in raising awareness in telling the story of, say, one family to people who may have never heard of it. I think that I mean, that's all that I can dream of, you know, and it was it, it ended up being a little bit bigger than that dream. So
0: well, congratulations. Thank you. If folks, I, I want to move on to uh, your memoir, cause I'm very yeah. excited to talk Thank to you, you about it. Uh, but if folks want to get a copy or read a copy of for and for themselves, what's the best Folks that are in the Seattle area are listeners. What's the best?
1: Go to Elliott Bay Books? Yeah, go to Elliott Bay Books, or even they have an online system, so you can buy it online. So go to elliottbay.com, and um, I think it's elliottbaybooks.com, and just type in foreign and my name, and it shows up, and just order the copy. Great. Mm, We'll link to that in the episode description. Lovely. Thank you. All right. So writing a novel wasn't enough. Now now you have to go to a different
0: genre. So tell me about this memoir. And what was that process of waking up and saying, you know, I'm going to come at storytelling from yet another
1: genre now. Right. <laughs> I know it's a little crazy, right? Um, so when I was writing the novel, I mean, I think, Because I hadn't done, you know, a lot of novelists, their first uh, books end up being autobiographical, right? Or at least semi-autobiographical. And I hadn't, I didn't go that route at all. So while I was writing the novel, I started to think about pieces of my own story um, and things that I wanted to say that I wasn't saying in this book. And, um, but the decision that I made was, okay, I want to say these things, but I want to also not couch it in fiction, but say this happened, this happens, uh, and it happens to more people than me, right? So it's a story about my country. It's a story about growing up as a woman in my country and then raising a son in this country and denying him his country, but then also what has he lost by living in this country, right? So that's the general theme of the book. And it really, uh, it it came together when my son, actually on the day that his uh, letter, his college admission letter arrived in the mail. <laughs> and I, you know, until then it was just like, yeah, yeah, we're sending out the applications, go the deadline, blah, blah. And then I see this letter that says, congratulations, you've been admitted to Swarthmore. And in I mean, you know, it was such a mixed emotion because I'm standing there. I'm this woman that's been twice divorced, one from an uh, Indian man, the second time from an American New York guy, white guy. And I'm standing there with this letter, realizing that the only relative that I have in this country is going to leave my home and go off to college. And I'm going to be alone, alone in this country. Right. I mean, he's there, but far away on the East Coast. And so that sort of became a frame for this bigger question of what have I done? What am I doing? Right. And why? And yet everything felt so right, right? In spite of the questions, things felt right, you know? And so, you know, with, with this self-doubt, we went, we, I decided I would go to India. Take my son with me and sort of build some bridges, mend some relationships, uh, try and sort of pull everything together so that he has a connection with his country before he leaves for college, before he leaves my home. So that's what the memoir is about. And it's about... Raising a young feminist man, uh, taking away the patriarchal privileges that he would have had in India. It's also an indictment of my country and saying, let's face some facts. There are some things that have been going horribly wrong and we still are not raising daughters to be as self Actualized as they can be. We're still putting fears in them, and it's an uphill battle to fight those fears. And there's such a culture of shame, there's such a culture Mm. of, you know, I mean, of saving face that we are not even allowed to talk about our fears, right? So there's all of that, and there's a little bit of fun and travel and all of that thrown in. But these were some of the big questions that were coming up for me as I was writing my fiction, my, you know, novel as well. So that's what you'll find in my memoir.
0: Do you have a title for
1: it yet? Not yet. I'm still, um, I'm still working on a title. Um, I, I had one title, but my agent said, "Nah, let's try again." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I was like, oh, please. But yeah, so right now we're still working on a title. The title. Yeah. The title
0: phase. Did the title for Foreign come easily?
1: Yeah, it came very easily. It's funny because a lot of people feel like, what? The title doesn't have much to do with the book. But it does. Because it's, uh, for me, it was about, even though it seems strange, right? Okay, so there's this Indian woman that's written this book called Foreign. Is it about being foreign? She lives in America. So does she, you know, all of that. But it's really about foreign seeds. To me, it's about what is foreign in the earth, right? Uh, These are GMO seeds um, from Monsanto, and they're foreign, right? And so uh, it's about, you know, things, germs. It's about what what belongs in the soil, what doesn't belong, people who belong, who doesn't belong, what stories belong to whom. Uh, So a lot of, you know, who is foreign. So there's a boy who's a 14-year-old, um, he seems to be much more connected to a country that he's never been to, whereas his mother, who's who'd lived there all her life, feels more foreign there than ever. So it's all about you know identity and all of that as well. So that came very quickly, and I you know it was the book, it was the the title right from the start, and everyone loved it and said yes, we're going with it. But I think the memoir is going to be more complex, <laughs> understandably. Yeah. So you're
0: you're inspiring the next generation. Storytellers. Wow,
1: am I? Yes,
0: yes, <laughs> you are. I wanna, I wanna hear about what it's like to be in a classroom in 2015, leading discussions with uh, media studies and journalism students.
1: Oh, it's amazing, Katie. I love what I do, and I think. In a huge way, my students kind of keep me on my toes, and yeah, yeah, and they keep me thinking about stories, right? They keep me thinking about what is still interesting, and you know, I just got my teaching evaluations today, and I was trying to read them at the traffic uh, stoplight, and you know, with them, the kind of uh, things that come up for them. It's just, um, I think it's the, at this particular time. I think since last year. There's been a shift. There's students are more into activism. Uh, feminism is on the rise again. And all of that is raising, is giving students. Um, different lenses and different language right to express themselves and social media i think for all the you know crying and beating our chests that we do that students or young people are just obsessed with social media i think it's been really powerful for them and it's told them that they have a voice um and that they have something to say and they're being careful with it i don't think that they're misusing it entirely And they're still curious, you know. They are reading, even if they're just reading each other's stories, they are very curious, and I think they're very well-informed. They are more well-informed or better informed than my students were, say, about six years ago, right? And so what has changed? I think that the ones that want to be informed are getting more and more information, and the ones that would not have been informed in the past are just, you know, dropping out maybe much more. But I think... um, I think them knowing that there's information out there and mixing that in with activism and mixing that in with this desire to ask more questions and the knowledge that you have access to the answers I think that's really important. So yeah, that's a very academic response to your question, I love but it. yeah, thank you cuz I that's how I feel. I mean, it's so complex. And, you know, I advise the campus newspaper as well. And I see the kind of work they're doing and the kind of stories they're doing. It's only getting better every year. They seem what, to be what very story, edgy.
0: What stories are they pitching? What are they interested in writing oh, about? Oh, they're
1: writing about race like never before. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, I, you know, they've made a few mistakes in the past few years. And that's been a great learning for them, you know, because these are students. They're not, you know, race scholars, right? right. Um, but, They are learning things and they want to learn after their mistakes. They want to get back on the horse and, you know, do it again. And they're writing about uh, privilege Uh, that, you know, white male students are writing about white privilege. They are approaching things with questions with wide-eyed wonder sometimes even fear you know and I think that's a good thing I don't think I would have done good journalism if I hadn't been afraid of you know screwing up somehow and that kind of healthy fear right Um, they're writing about uh, you know fossil fuels and I mean, every kind of activism, they're interested in politics, they're interested in who's going to be the next president, right? Um, They're interested in student loans. I mean, everything from what directly affects them to what affects the rest of the world, right? They're more and more interested in what's happening in other countries. And I think that is another refreshing aspect of what's going on these days. So to watch that take shape, to sort of nudge and guide them along with that, I mean, you know, it's my role as advisor and as teacher in my classes is sort of uh, lead them and say, hey, we, you know, we can take these paths, but also be open to surprise at where they want to go. Right. And to say, okay, I don't have the information for you yet by my, next class, I'm going to have this and let's include the segment, you know? So that kind of being open to new stuff, I think has been really useful for me.
0: What excites you about, I, I love, I love hearing the passion in your voice. You're obviously very enthusiastic and care a lot about these students. Uh, what excites you about the future of, Journalism and where where it's going. I mean, you touched a little bit on social media and how these students even have a fire under their butt to mm-hmm. to make stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we'll see more activist writing, or what? What do you think? What's coming up next
1: for journalism? What are going to be the challenges? And, and... yeah, I think one one very important thing that's happened, which most journalists will, you know, be upset if I say this, if they're mm-hmm. traditionalists, right? And some of my, my colleagues here would probably be as well, is that we've lost, um, not lost, but we've dismantled some of the gatekeepers, right? The traditional gatekeepers. So the New York Times is not necessarily where I'm going to go for breaking news, um, nor am I going to go to CNN. I'll probably go to Twitter and look for something, right? And then I have, as a member of the audience or as a reader, my own way of figuring out the credibility of my sources and we've kind of you know come to that point where we know that we have to question the credibility of some of the stuff we read online so we are not just totally gullible so we have that gatekeeping function has been dismantled and i think it's a good thing uh that is exciting the other thing that's exciting is the collapse of boundaries between different forms of writing Mm. right so students or young people are um, watching, say, Breaking Bad, right, and encountering these complex characters who are criminals, and yet they have a complexity of story. There's no necessary. And there's not, the division of good and evil is not as dramatic right. as um, news media needed it to be. So, you know, when I when I still I still teach news values, and I say conflict is a news value, proximity. You know, I go down the ten important news values. And they're all set up for sort of minimizing a big complex story to the most easy form of storytelling, right? And I think now with so much, with access to context that can provide more background, so you can go get more material online, you know, click here for a background story on this. And I think all of that is converging in this kind of... Um, Understanding that uh, that is more nuanced, and so some of the storytelling aspects of, sort of television uh, long form television are mixing in with storytelling aspects in print and fiction is mixing in. So I tell my students, go learn, take some uh, classes in fiction writing, right? And learn how to really reflect character in nuanced ways. So you're not painting out the good and evil and you're not doing the good and evil on television. If you, you know, that's your format. And I think all of that, we're going to see more and more fuzziness between boundaries. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just depends on, Basically, what it comes down to is storytelling and empathy. So if Mm. you have, and I think I would include curiosity as well, right? So if someone, if a student or a young person has curiosity, empathy and storytelling skills, they can create really terrific stuff. And I think that is something that I see uh, available or taking shape in good abundance now. So that's, those are some of the things that excites You sound excite
0: hopeful. Me. I love that you sound <laughs> hopeful. <about laughs> yeah, I am. Nice. I
1: am. I think, I think it's really, I mean, I think it's really exciting. I mean, I, I'm not feeling jaded. I feel like, I feel like, you know, the next few years are going to be really important. I think I just, what I worry about is that some people, their hopes may be crushed, right? The resurgence of feminism that we are seeing now, if things don't change quickly, Right. If we don't do something about rape culture quickly, mm-hmm. if we don't do something about language, um, then I think that's going to be disappointing. And don't forget, our, you know, the generation or millennials or whatever. We, If we if we need to put them in a box, they do want instant gratification. They want change quickly. So I do worry about that aspect. But that's not there that's our problem. That's the gen- my generation that needs to say, OK, OK, let's do it. Right? <laughs> we're doing it. We're doing it. We're almost there. Um, so I, I don't fault young people for that. I think it's good to have that kind of impatience and sort of be drumming your fingers and saying, guys, are you changing now? Are we changing?
0: (laughs) Again, you fill me with hope in this conversation. (laughs) I didn't since, I mean, I write, I Mm. write for a, a local arts magazine, but I don't do any hard hitting journalism per se. So it's, It's wonderful to get your perspective on all of this. I'm glad, Uh, Katie. Before our time comes to a close, I want—where can people find you online? I know you're on Twitter and you have a website as well.
1: Yeah, I have a website, SonoraJha.com, which I will go back and update really quickly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's it's really relatively updated. Um, And there's also yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and you can follow me on Facebook. Um, That's where I usually hang out excellent
0: we'll have links to all those uh goody- i don't know why i just said Licious. it's a line a character a line a character of mine had so goodylicious well oh
1: nice <laughs> all like those licious
0: links <laughs> and uh and profiles on social media we'll link to in the episode description thank you so much for sitting down to talk with me thank
1: you Kitty. really great questions <laughs> yeah thank you
0: terrific